peace be to you. Already there is a background about original sin. In this lesson, we are concerned with how it affects us. In other words, it's very practical application. Everyone is tremendously interested in psychology. We try to understand ourselves. We search the reasons of why we tick. We probe and analyze our anxieties and our conflicts. Some of us wonder why we are run down, and others why we are wound up. Now, there are many explanations of all of these conflicts within us, but original sin alone gives us the basic understanding of human nature. No one can understand psychology unless they understand human nature. No one can understand human nature unless he understands original sin. Somehow or other, the abuse that has happened to our mind or that has come to our mind has been due in some way to human freedom. Do we not feel like a radio that's tuned into two stations? We get nothing but static. We're tuned into heaven, we're tuned into hell. Ovid, the Latin poet, described it very well. He said, I see and I approve the better things of life. The worst things of life I follow. St. Paul also described our inner psychology when he wrote, the good which I will to do, that I do not, and the evil which I will not, that I do. We feel dual, pulled in two different directions, as if we were a team of horses. One horse was going to the right and the other horse was going to the left. Our soul is like a battlefield in which a civil war is being waged. We feel split almost into many worlds. Some of us may even feel like the young man out of whom our Lord drove the devil. Our Lord said to the devil, What is your name? The devil answered, My name is Legion, for we are many. Notice the conflict between my and we. He was one. He was multiple. Even the best of us feel as if we are mountain climbers. We can see the summit and the peak toward which we are striving up above us. And then we look back and we see the abyss into which we might fall. Above is what we ought to be, and below is what we can become. As a poet has put it, within my earthly temple there's a crowd. There's one of us that's humble, one that's proud. 
There's one that's broken-hearted for his sins, and one who unrepentant sits and grins. There's one who loves his neighbor as himself, and one who cares for naught but fame and pelf. From much corroding care I should be free if once I could determine which is me. Now, there are explanations that are given for this conflict within us. They are true to some extent, but actually they're only partial. These false explanations can be reduced to three. One is psychological, the other is biological, and the other is economic. They are, I should not say, altogether false. They are just partial explanations. The partial explanation is the psychological. It tries to find out what has happened personally to us in the past. Some will say the reason we have uh, this particular psychosis is because we were frightened when we were locked in a closet one day because we were bad, or else because our parents scolded us when we try to manifest our interest in a particular kind of pleasure. And conceivably, it might have been sex. In other words, whatever is wrong with us has a personal background. Therefore, in order to be cured of our difficulty, there must be an analysis of our subconscious mind. And if we can bring out of the subconscious mind, the source of this personal conflict, we will be cured. Now, this explanation has some merit in it, but it is only a partial accounting for the way we are. It is wrong inasmuch as it assumes that if we are to find the source of the difficulty of any particular person, we need to go into that person's background. No. Everybody has a conflict. It is not just our personality and our psychological background that is wrong. Something has happened to our nature. Do not think that simply because you have a temptation that there's something wrong with you. And do not believe either that you have a monopoly on temptation. Everyone has temptations, everyone in the world. You alone are not queer. Everybody is queer. If therefore we are to find the ultimate explanation, we must get beyond the person we've got to get back to human nature. Something has happened to us, whatever it is, and it has affected every single human being in the world. Another partial explanation, and false because it is partial, is the biological. This assumes that we are the way we are because there was a fall somewhere in the evolutionary process. And we all have the 
traces of our animal origin. Now, this is hardly the explanation because animals left to themselves never have any anxieties. They may have natural fears, but they have no subjective anxieties in the strict sense of the word. A pig has no neurosis. Birds do not develop a psychosis about whether they will take a winter trip to California or to Florida. An animal never becomes less than it is. But a man can. And the reason is he is a composite of both spirit and matter. If we are to find the total explanation of what is wrong with man, it must be sought within man himself. When we see a monkey acting crazily in a zoo, we do not say, oh, do not act like a nut. But when we see a man acting foolishly, we say, don't act like a monkey. See, a monkey cannot get below itself, but man can. Because man is spirit as well as matter, he can descend to the level of beasts, though never so completely as to destroy the image of God that is in his soul. It is this possibility that makes the peculiar tragedy of man. Man would never be frustrated. He would never have an anxiety complex if he were an animal and if he were made just for this world. It's because of that summit, that peak, that desire for perfect happiness, which he does not attain, that he can become a seat of confidence. Therefore, the animal in us is not the cause of why we are the way we are. It is something more profound. A third false explanation, because it is partial, is the economic. Here it is assumed that man has conflicts because he is poor because of capitalism or because of communism. Is it not a fact that never before has the world had so much wealth and never before has it had so much unhappiness? Never before has it had so much learning. Never before has it had so little coming to the knowledge of the truth. Never before has it had so much power. And never before has it been so bent on the destruction of human life. Economic development is not the total cause of man's derangement. All the rich are not virtuous. 
All the poor are not sinners. If poverty were the cause of the way we are, then the rich should be paragons of virtue. But the fact is that it is more the overprivileged and the rich who have mental conflicts than it is the poor. Very often, the more one is detached from this world, the more normal he is, the more healthy on the inside. This world of ours has not just made a few mistakes in bookkeeping. Rather, the world has swindled the treasury of morality. And that is the kind of poverty from which we suffer. Somehow or other, we lost spiritual capital. We are like prodigal sons that have left the father's house. And we're feeding on husks. Looking back then on all of these explanations, we have to conclude this, that God certainly did not create us this way. We are fallen. And the facts support this view. There is a voice inside of our moral consciousness that tells us that our immoral, and unmoral acts are abnormal. They ought not to be there. There's something wrong in us, something dislocated. God did not make us one way. Or rather, he did make us one way. We've made ourselves, in virtue of our freedom, another way. He wrote the drama, we changed the plot. We are not just animals that fail to evolve into humans. We are humans who have rebelled against the divine. If we are riddles to ourselves, we are not to put the blame on God. Nor in evolution we are to put the blame on ourselves. We are not depraved criminals. We are weak. We're not just a mass of corruption. We bear within ourselves the image of God. We're very much like a man who's fallen into a well. We ought not to be there, and yet we cannot get out. We are sick. We need healing. We need deliverance. We need liberation. And we know very well that we cannot give this liberation and freedom to ourselves. We are like a fish on top of the Empire State Building. Somehow or other, we are outside of our environment. We cannot swim back into the stream. Someone has to put us back. Now, it is true that God, as we said, has established a law there will be a moral universe, 
And the moral universe implies a free universe, and because we are free, we can abuse our freedom. But we are not to blame God for it. When you buy an automobile, you always find with it a set of instructions. The manufacturer tells you the pressure to which you ought to inflate your tires and the kind of oil you ought to put in your crankcase and the kind of gasoline you ought to put in the gas tank. He has nothing against you because he gives you these directions. And God has nothing against us when he gives his commandments. The manufacturer of the automobile really wants to be helpful when he gives us these laws. He wants you to get the maximum utility out of that car. And God is anxious that we get the maximum amount of happiness out of life. And so he said, I will tell you what you should do, what you ought to do. Now we are free, we can do just as we please. We ought to put gasoline into the tank of our car. But we can put perfume in there. We can put in smell number five. And there's no doubt that it's going to be nicer for our nostrils to fill the tank with perfume than with gasoline. But the car simply will not run on smell number five. In like manner, we were made to run on the fuel of God's love and commandments, and we simply will not run on anything else. We just bog down. To give another example which explains original sin and also the conflicts that are within us. Suppose there was before us an orchestra. And there was a distinguished conductor directing that orchestra. There has been a symphony composed. It is well marked, well scored. All a musician has to do is to follow it. Now each member of that orchestra is free to follow the conductor and therefore produce harmony. Suppose one of the musicians in that orchestra deliberately plays a false note and then he jabs the violinist alongside of him and tells him to play another false note. There's discord somewhere. Now having heard that discord, the director can do one of two things. He can either strike his baton and say, play it over, or he can ignore it. It makes no difference which he does, because that note is already going out into space. At a certain temperature, it's traveling at the rate of about 1,100 feet a second, and on and on it goes, affecting even the infinitesimally small radiation of the universe. Just as a stone dropped in the pond causes a ripple, so too this discord affects even the most distant stars. And as long as time endures, somewhere in God's universe, there is a disharmony introduced by the free will of man. Can that discord be stopped? Not by man himself, 
for man cannot reach it. Time is irreversible, and man is localized in space. Is there any way of stopping the discord? Yes, there is one way, and that is if the eternal came out of his eternity into time. He might lay hold of that false note, seize and arrest it in its mad flight, stop it from going any further. But would there still be discord in the universe? There could be harmony introduced on one condition. Namely, if God wrote a new symphony and made that false note the first note in the new harmony, then there would be harmony again. Now, a long time ago, God wrote a symphony and asked man and woman to play it, gave a complete set of instructions down to the last detail of what to avoid. Man and woman being free could obey the divine director and produce harmony, or they could disobey it. And the devil suggested that because the divine director had marked the script and told them what to play and what not to play, that he was destroying their freedom. And they believed him, and he introduced a false note into the universe, and on and on through the human race, this individual and uh, discord continued to sweep, and it affected every single human being in the universe with this disharmony. And this discord even had its repercussions in the material universe. Thistles grew, beasts became wild. Man had to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. Women brought forth their children in sorrow as a stream polluted at its source, passes on its pollution through its length, so the original fault was transmitted to all humanity. And that discord could not be stopped by man himself, because he could not repair an offense against the infinite with his own finite self. The debt could be paid only by the divine master of musician, coming out of his eternity, into time, but there would be a world of difference between stopping a discordant note and a rebellious man. The discordant note has no freedom. Man has. That's where the analogy breaks down. God refuses to be a totalitarian dictator. And therefore, he refuses to abolish freedom by destroying, or rather abolish evil by destroying human freedom. God could seize the note, but he would not seize a man. So instead of conscripting man, God willed to consult humanity again as to whether or not it wanted to be made a member of the divine orchestra once more. And so out from the great white throne of light comes an angel. And it comes to a woman whose name is Mary. And the angel asks Mary in the name of God, will you give to God a man? Will you give to God a new note out of humanity with which he can write a new symphony? 
This new man must be a man, otherwise God would not be acting in the name of humanity. But he must also be outside of the current of infection to which all men are subject. Being born of a woman, he would be a man. And being born of a virgin, he would be a sinless man. So the virgin was asked if she would consent to be a mother. And she gave to God a man. And her answer was, be it done to me according to thy word. Nine months later, the Eternal established its beachhead in Bethlehem. As he who was eternal appeared in time. And his name is Jesus Christ, God and man. He is God. Therefore, whatever he does has an infinite value. And though this human nature of his is sinless, he makes himself responsible for all the sins of the world. As a rich brother takes upon himself the debt of his bankrupt brother, so our Lord takes upon himself all the discords and harmonies and all the sins and all the guilts and all the blasphemies of man as if he himself were guilty. As gold is thrust into the furnace to have its dross burned away, so he takes that human nature, plunges it into Calvary to have our sins burned away. Or to change the figure, since sin is in the blood, he pours out his blood in redemption, for without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. And then on Easter Sunday, he rises again with his glorified, sinless human nature. And this becomes the first note in the new creation, the beginning of the new symphony, which will be played again and again by the divine conductor. And how are other notes added? We are the other notes. If, like Mary, we freely consent to be added to that first note. And how do we become added? We become added by the sacrament of baptism, by which each man dies to the old Adam and incorporates himself to the new Adam, Christ. And all of these notes that are added to this first note constitute the new body of Christ, or what is known as his mystical body, the church. This is what it means to be a Christian.